0: Parkview Church, blessings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be opening God's Word with you. We're a whole church making whole disciples, and the best way that we do that is with our Bibles open. So if you would open your Bible to Acts 3, very important again every Sunday to have a copy of God's Word before you so that you see that what is being taught is not human ideas or cleverness, but is the very Word of God. And so we are in the book of Acts, and one of my mentors years ago kind of emblazoned into my brain the theme statement of the book of Acts, the way he uh, labeled it, was this. Newness of life in the resurrected Christ. Newness of life in the resurrected Christ. Jesus is the true, long-awaited Christ, King, anointed one who would come to establish God's kingdom, his rule of love and justice and forgiveness and through his church to proclaim, proclaim to all nations, remember Acts 1-8, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to all nations, the good news that Jesus is king and in him is newness of life. And we saw in chapter 3 just last week, verses 1-10, to 10, the transformation of the lame man. And the, the crowd is utterly astounded at the transformation that has occurred. This, this lame man becomes leaping and praising God. And just a quick encouragement uh, for those of us in our modern culture uh, that struggle with issues of healing or even if we could trust the historical reliability of a book like Acts, if you have those questions, oftentimes we're not going to address those in details uh, in sermons that we're preaching because we have training hours, the next two training hours actually on Sunday. So next Sunday, 9 a.m., Sunday after that, 9 a.m., we're looking at first the historicity of Acts. Is Acts, can it be reliable history? Can we learn from it, true things, facts about history? And then that week after that is about healing. And many of us maybe have questions. What do we do with the healings in Acts? And is healing for today? And things like that, right? We have questions. And we're not going to cover all of those in a sermon. And so we have these training hours given to you to provide you deeper instruction in God's Word. And so here's the, the crowd astonished that in verse 2 they see a lame man at the, outside the temple sitting asking for alms, but then in verse 8 they see a leaping man standing, walking, praising God. Verse 2 to verse 8, radical transformation. How does it happen? Well, kind of the crux of the whole passage is verse 6, the key is that in the name of the resurrected Jesus rise up and walk. It is the newness of life in the resurrected Christ and then What Peter does now in our focus passage, what we're looking at, studying together, verses 11 to 26, is Peter now explains, in light of this healing, here is who Jesus is and how you should respond to who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Basically, the sermon is very simple. It's basically this, repent and turn back to God. That's the whole sermon in a nutshell, and really it's reasons from verse eleven all the way to twenty six, reasons why you and I, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what He is going to give to us, what He promises to give to us, how we should repent, we should turn around. What we're going to look at is the language of this story. Is we need to stop being the authors of our own lives, choosing for ourselves our own destiny and the own story of how things should be in our own life, and instead so to speak, give the pen and paper or the keyboard, however you write a story nowadays, over to Jesus. As the author of life and in his resurrection life, he takes center stage of our lives. Takes over our shameful past and gives us forgiveness. He transforms our exhausted presence and gives us refreshment from his presence. We're gonna see in verse 20. And then he's gonna take our desperate future that ought to end in destruction and give us restoration of all things. We're going to see that in verse 21. But ultimately, it's all about repenting, repenting, turning back to God. All of us should be repenting in some form or fashion, whether it's a big R repentance of the first time, laying down your weapons, so to speak, of rebellion and resistance against God by faith in Jesus Christ, or little R repentances that we are to do, as Martin Luther says, all the way back in the 16th century, that the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. All of the Christian life is one of repentance, little r, repentance, over and over again. All of us should be repenting in response to this sermon, in response to God's Word. And so in light of that, let's hear God's Word for us today from Acts 3, verses 11 to 26. So while he, the lame man who's been healed, clung to Peter and John... You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name, by faith in his name, "...has made this man strong, whom you see and know, the faith that is through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore." and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days You are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. It is fully true and given to us in love. So let's pray together. Father, this is your word. These are your people. And I am first a servant of you and your word. And secondly, a servant to these precious people. So, help me come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Our greatest desire is to see Christ in all of his loveliness, and in seeing him, that we would turn, that we would repent. So, by your Spirit, help us learn all that you teach, obey all that you command, delight in all that you love, repent and turn away from all that you warn us against, and trust all that you promise in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whose name we pray. Amen. So yesterday, Haddon had one of those two-year-old fits, and he was going crazy. He was crying. We couldn't calm him down. We tried, felt like everything, until Claire had the idea, and she's done this a few times with Haddon. She said, Wade, tell him a story. Tell Haddon a story. Haddon, he needed his attitude to turn around And so what he needed was a story. So the story we're using with him nowadays is he loves uh, Disney, Pixar, Cars, if you are familiar with Lightning McQueen. There's three of them. And all you need to do is just choose one of Haddon's favorite characters and just narrate some bonkers story that makes no sense to us, but he just loves. For Haddon to turn, he needed to hear a better story. And that's really the logic of this passage. For us to turn away from our sin, for us to repent and to turn back to God, as it says in verse 19, we need to understand the story of the author of life, Jesus' is named in verse 15, as the author of life, who is giving resurrection life through his resurrection life. From the dead, God raising his servant to give resurrection. That is the story, the big meta narrative, so to speak, that helps us understand why you and I need to repent and turn away from what we so often do, which is think of our lives primarily as stories. And this happens all the time in our modern world, in our culture of self ism that we, in the end, get to construct our identities and meanings for ourselves based on a story that we come up with to give ourselves meaning and purpose. And so for us to repent of being the center stage, so to speak, the main actors in our play, in our story, we need to understand the true or better story that God has woven into history through Christ, who is the servant whom God raised from the dead, okay? Now, I want you to notice quick, quickly the flow of this passage, okay? Let's set up the framework before we look at it in detail, okay? I was really helped by scholars David Peterson, Daryl Bach, and John Stott, who in their own ways each helped me understand how this thing puts together, because at first it was a bit complex for me. Verse 19, if you look at verse 19, right, it functions as the hinge, Okay? Uh, be, be, between uh, 12 and 18, and 20 and 26 is the hinge, and it's really the, the singular command. Repent, therefore, and turn back to God. Therefore, it's there for a purpose, right? And in part one, Peter's sermon, verses 12 to 18, we might think of it as a repentance sandwich, okay? Top, to, the top of the bread is verses 12 to, to 18, where we learn about who Jesus is and therefore what we should do in response to him. And then in part two, the bottom piece of bread, verses the last part of 19 all the way to 26, is, is the bottom piece of bread, which is what Jesus promises to give us if we are to repent, okay? So who Jesus is, repentance, what Jesus gives us if we are to repent. And so part two, it's very clear what we should do. We must be a repenting people because of who Jesus is and what he will do for us. That's the whole aim of Acts 3. So let's explore this in more detail. Let's look at the first section, verses 12 to 18, of who Jesus is and what we have done to him. The focus for Peter right off the bat is the identity of Jesus, the servant of the Lord who is the author of life, right? Look at verse 13. After Peter turns attention away from human power and piety, as he says in verse 12, as the source of this man's healing, he says, no, no, no. Let's put the, put, the, put the focus, verse 13, on God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers... This God, this God you know and worship, speaking to a first century Jewish Jewish audience, this God whom you know as the God of covenant, who's been faithful to his word and to his promises throughout the Old Testament, this God you love and worship, this God glorified his servant Jesus. Now Peter really understands his audience here, because if you are a person in the first century Uh, In the Jewish culture, you would have probably memorized, or at least kind of emblazoned in your imagination, this phrase of the servant of the Lord. God's servant. God's chosen servant from the book of Isaiah. Several chapters, you'll notice if you read through Isaiah, are about this servant figure. In thousands of years earlier, Isaiah spoke of a time when God would save his people from sin and suffering, both sin and suffering, the two problems that we face, God would save his people through his chosen servant whom he would exalt. Gabby Gabby read the passage very wonderfully. The very beginning, the last part of chapter 52, what you would have noticed listening is that it says the servant will be exalted. And yet, exaltation happens at the beginning, but exaltation happens through what? The rest of the passage is about suffering. Suffering. God's chosen servant will be exalted through his suffering on behalf of God's people to save them. So here's Peter telling this crowd that thousands of years ago, you know the servant of God who would come to rescue you from sin and suffering. God's chosen beloved servant. This servant is, surprise, surprise, Jesus of Nazareth. This would have been very shocking to them. And so what Peter then does, after now clarifying who Jesus is, he's going to show us what we've done to this Jesus. And Peter now gives a kind of parenthesis, a short story, we might say, a short story of the horror of human wickedness, where he narrates an ever-increasing wickedness in each scene of this story of horrible wickedness what we have done to Jesus. Four acts of wickedness, four scenes we might say. First, verse 13, you delivered Jesus over. Second, verse 13 again, you denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate even though he decided to release him. Obviously meaning that even the pagans, the I don't worship God pagans thought this man Jesus was totally in- innocent. But look, verse 14, repeat it again, but you denied The holy set apart before God, righteous one who does the right thing in the right time in the right way from the right heart all the time. You denied the perfect, holy, righteous one of God, and then you did a third horrible act. Verse 14, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead of Jesus. The scenes of this horror film of human wickedness keep getting worse and worse. I mean what Peter's saying is you were foolish enough to trade the MVP of humanity, the holy and righteous one, for the JVB team free agent murderer whose career was already in the garbage heap of history, but you chose that guy instead of God's holy and righteous servant. Only wicked fools would make such a trade. But there's one more thing. The movie keeps getting worse, the story more horrific at each scene. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. Personally, as I've been reflecting on this passage, I've got to think this is one of the phrases in the Bible with some of the most tragic irony. You killed the one who is the source of your life. Throughout the Bible, we see again and again, starting all the way back in the beginning of God's creating a world full of life, we see God as the author writing a story of gorgeous, wonderful life, page after page, chapter after chapter of the most beautiful, heart-winning story of fullness of life, in the presence of this life-giving God of love with Him at the center stage and all things unfolding from there in praise and glory and adoration to Him. And our lives as humans made in His image to play a supporting role and probably more like a background role to His glory. And then this God of life Sending his own son, who, if you know the gospel of John, is the way, the truth, and the life, to give oxygen of his loving life to suffocating sinners and sufferers. And yet, how did we treat this God, this God who authors life? We killed the author of life. What sane patient kills the doctor who's trying to pump oxygen into the suffocating lungs of the patient? How foolish. How tragic to cut ourselves off from the very person who gives us life. And friends, verses 11 2.15 are simply a snapshot of how wicked and terrible our sin really is. Now, it is true on the one hand, to make it very clear, there is a unique responsibility that the first century Jewish people, in Peter's context, had in killing Jesus. But as the great contemporary hymn says, in summary of new test, clear New Testament teaching on human responsibility for sin, The hymn says, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. You delivered Jesus over. You denied Jesus. You exchanged Jesus. You killed the author of life. You see, the problem with sin is not so much doing something bad, although that is wrong. The horror and wickedness of sin is based on the glory and holiness of the person you sin against. And in verses 13 to 15, we are no longer just movie watchers observing a film of horror. We are actually actors in that very story. The story that has been played out in human history day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century of what one 20th century atheist put it, we don't want God to exist because God would interfere with our lives, We are, like the sheep of Isaiah 53, choosing to turn our own way away from God, wanting to create our own stories of life for ourselves apart from God with the light spotlight on us and our glory and our affirmation and our goodness. And this is why, by the way, personally, to confess with you, this is why I struggle so often, and maybe you do too, With what people think about me? With what people, are they approving of me? Are they celebrating me? Do they notice my giftings? Do they notice what I'm doing? What does that person think of me? What did they mean by that when they said that? And the constant narration of why we are so afraid of other people's judgments is because in our conscience, we understand that life is a story. But what's happened is we substituted God for the center and main role of the story for ourselves. In our prideful sin, we have grasped onto center stage of our story. We kill the author of life. And this is the heart of every story apart from Christ. Every lustful glance. Grasping for selfish pleasure instead of God's design. Every person denying God's good and wise design in order to express their true inner self in a world of self-fulfillment. Every self-focused political grab for power or control, craving human power and attention instead of God's honor and service. Every insecure post on social media seeking to make a self-made Platform for others' approval and likes. Every unloving word of anger or gossip or criticism thrown at family members or neighbors or coworkers, as we reassure ourselves of our own self-rightness, and of course how wrong they are, as we are the judges of our story. No matter what your flavor of sin is, Parkview. What has happened is that you and I have an inbuilt mechanism that has gone haywire in our hearts that wants to control and manipulate our life story to ensure that we are in control, that it's all about me, all about self, that I'm the author of my story. And this way of thinking always leads to the ultimate horror story of killing the author of life. Because we don't want God to interfere with my pursuit of pleasure or power or whatever it is for you, that particular sin. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin, your sin, upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. You killed the author of life. And there's no greater tragedy in the story of humanity than that. And yet God, verse 15, God did something radical in the first century. Verse 15 says, you killed the author of life, and get this, Next phrase, but God raised him from the dead. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. In the matter of one sentence, what must have been three seconds as Peter was preaching this sermon, listen, Parkview, the resurrection of Jesus becomes the proof that God is the author of a greater and better story who can turn the horror story of human wickedness into a glorious drama of Christ's redemption. That is what the resurrection does. That's the whole point of the rest of verses 15 to 18, because Peter then, after this parentheses of this horror story of human wickedness, he then moves back to Christ, the resurrected servant of the Lord, and he shows us That God has been writing a story of resurrection life through the author of life, Jesus, ever since the beginning of time. Look at verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, the faith that is through Jesus, the author of life, just explained, he has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. This healed man, the argument is what Peter's doing, the healed man who is leaping, he's a living billboard planted in the ground in the first century for everyone to see that God is the God of resurrection, and that if he can take a dead dead carpenter by the name of Jesus and raise him from crucified death into everlasting life, and if that living Jesus has power to transform a lame man in the first century into leaping and praising God, then surely the logic is Faith in this Jesus can change your life story no matter how wicked you are. So Peter concludes in verses 17 to 18 saying, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, but that doesn't let you off the hook, because you should have known, verse 18, that God foretold all of this to happen. You should have known if you were reading your Bibles, you would have known so to speak, what Peter's saying. You would have known that God foretold all of this through the prophets that his Christ, there it is again, focused on Christ, would suffer. In your wicked ignorance, you killed the author of life, but what was God's plan all along in Scripture? His plan is that Christ would suffer, verse 18, the last few words there, thus fulfilling, thus fulfilling his plan, thus fulfilling his word to rescue his people through the suffering servant again. Here's Peter's point. Here's Peter's point. Don't miss this. Human wickedness cannot rewrite the story of the author of life. Your wickedness and sin, if, as we're about to see in verse 19, if given to Jesus, if by faith in Jesus and in repentance you give it all to Christ, He can rewrite your story because that's how wonderful the resurrection is and that's how sovereign God is, how all in control God is, that he even incorporates and turns human wickedness for his ultimate glory to the praise of Jesus Christ by raising his suffering servant Jesus from death. And so this is who Jesus is, no matter what you have done to him him, that horror story of human wickedness, if this is who Jesus is, then verse 19, there's only one thing that we must do. And now we're in the second part of the sermon. There's only one thing that we, you and I must do, and it is repent, therefore. Repent, therefore, meaning a turning back, a stopping of your old ways of thinking and living that you get to be the author of your life. Turn back like those wandering sheep deciding for themselves that they get to have control of their own story. Turn back to the one who wants to shepherd you, so to speak, to guide you into what is true and good according to his word. Turn back by a true understanding of both the gravity and wickedness of your sin, yes, but also turn back because ultimately of who Jesus is as the one who suffers for you in death, but who's the author of life raised from death by the power of God, to rewrite your story through his gospel mercy. That's just it, right? That's what repentance is. It is letting Jesus to rewrite your story, to, in a sense, drop the paper and pen or turn off the keyboard, whatever it is for you, writing a story, and hand it all over to Jesus Christ, no longer allowing him or thinking he is a peripheral side support actor to your fulfillment, but instead joining Jesus in all of his glory. You see, Leonardo DiCaprio, I bet, will only act in movies when he knows the director is both highly skilled and also has specific good purpose for his role in that story. Skilled, professional expertise and a goodness, a purpose behind it all. And, and this is what we're going to see right now. The reason you repent is not ultimately because of the danger of sin, though it is dangerous and it is terrible. The ultimate reason why we repent is because your heart sees something so beautiful and wonderful about Jesus that your heart will turn Remember Haddon crying there, losing his brains? What he needed was to hear a story of something that would capture his mind away from what was troubling him. And this is what Jesus gives us in the gospel. I want you to notice there are three blessings, and we're going to linger here for as much time as we have. On each of these blessings, this is unbelievable. I was so, I woke up out of bed this morning, and I wanted to get to this point in the sermon because I love you so much. And it's so exciting and so thrilling. You ready? I want you to notice the word that in verses 19, 20, and 21, right? Repent, therefore, and turn back that, number one, your sins are blotted out through the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 20, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of Christ. And then verse 20 and 22, that Christ would return And later it says, in the restoration of all things. So we could say it like this. Here's what the resurrected Jesus wants to do in your life, in my life, if we are just willing to repent and to turn back. Verse 19, the story, we might say, of your guilty, shameful past is forgiven, verse 19, through the blood and sacrifice of Christ. Verse 20, the story of your exhausted present is refreshed, through the presence of Christ. And then verse 21, the story of your future is restored through the return of Christ. At each aspect, there's a focus on a particular move of the work of Christ. So verse 19, the first gift to those who would just repent and turn to Jesus. The first is sins will be blotted out. Now the word here, blotted out, was used in an ancient context of a deep cleansing and removal of of an ink stain from a papyrus, what they used to write on. And so in that day and time, you would think that as you write on a papyrus, it was kind of this permanent etching into that piece of paper, papyrus, of, of what is happening. But what we see in this verse is now, totally and completely, it can be blotted out and obliterated. And what a mercy for us As we think of our past lives, our past story, and we look at it, and it is filled with the horror scenes of regret filled with the horror scenes of our wickedness and what causes shame because of the choices we have made or the actions we have done. It feels like it has been etched into our personal history, and it's always speaking condemnation over us for how much we have failed or not lived up to the expectations of what we thought we had. And all of this, though, points to verse 19, your sins being blotted out. Because the story that Jesus of Christ through his gospel wants to tell you is that your sins can be fully and forever eradicated and obliterated through his bloody sacrifice on the cross. And the author of life rising from death is right now able to write into your life a new story of forgiveness, a new story of purity a new story of hope and joy, all because of what He has accomplished on the cross. If death was not the final end of the story for Jesus, your sin is therefore no longer the final end of your life's story. No matter how bad the regret is, the mercy of Jesus Christ, we just sang about it, the mercy of Jesus Christ, no matter our sins may be many, but his mercy is more. That's how good Jesus is. He is not going to revisit. If you come to Jesus, imagine this. He's never going to sit down with you and revisit the chapters in your story that are filled with guilt and shame of sin. He has obliterated those, blotted them out through his death on the cross. And the stamp, the approval of that work is his resurrection from the dead. So why not repent? and turn back to this Jesus. That's the first gift. The second gift is, verse 20, times of refreshing flowing down upon us from the presence of Christ. The story is one of where our exhausted present is refreshed through the presence of Christ. Here, the ancient image of refresh, refreshing is the image of a cooling of a wound. You have kind of that cut, and there's that balm, and there's that process, that cooling that needs to happen, that healing for what has traumatized you. Parents, you provide this type of refreshment every time your child's cut or scraped their knee, and you know what you do? You 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. Take them in your arms and you may put some ointment on it and then you know you, you cool it, you refresh it by shh shh, shh, shh shh, it's okay. I love you. It's okay. Shh. Times are refreshing from the Lord. What Peter is saying is that the risen, mighty, powerful Jesus Christ, right now by his Holy Spirit, tenderly and sweetly, brings you into his arms and what troubles you? What's traumatized you? What are the wounds that you are experiencing? times refreshing from the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you so much that he raised from death in order to refresh you right now, 21st century, you sitting right there in the midst of all your wounds and your festering problems and all of your anxiety or the anger that weighs you down. Sh-sh-sh. what Jesus offers to every single one of us if we would just repent and turn back to him. Now we need to move to the third gift, the third and final blessing that Jesus gives to every single one of us if we would just repent and turn back to our precious Lord. Verse 20, 21 says, that he may send Christ to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, get this, the restoring of all things spoken by God through the prophets, the restoring of all things through the return of Christ, all that is broken and suffering. God's plan is to one day work it all backwards and restore it into something glorious, as C.S. Lewis once said, turning every agony in our lives into a glory. And please notice in verse 21, the text says that the restoration of all things... I hope you look at specific words in the Bible because it doesn't say the restoration of a few of those things in your life. It doesn't say a restoration of some of those things in your life, it says the restoration of all things and all things, I don't know what your all things are. Maybe for you it's the marriage things, it's the kids things, it's the work things or the chronic pain things or the death of a loved one things. It doesn't matter what your things are. The promise of the resurrected Jesus Christ is his heart in heaven right now is bursting with a longing as he hears the cry of his people in suffering. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Creation groaning, as it says in in Romans eight. Groaning, Lord, how long? How long will I have to deal with these things? And in his heart, Christ is saying to us from his word in verse 27, I'm coming. Come, Lord Jesus. He says, yes, I'm coming to restore all things. Parkview, he will come. As the author of life, he will come again to restore and mend every little thing in your life that is broken. And yes, even that thing. That you're like, could it be true? Could it be true that Jesus is weaving a story beyond our greatest comprehension? And for me, what captures this the best Is at the end of Lord of the Rings. Samwise Gamgee, after he has destroyed the ring and the great battle is over, he's laying back, recovering from his wounds in a a home. And as he lays back, he stares with open mouth. And for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, the wizard. I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to this world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed and then the wizard laughed and the sound of his laughter was like music or like water in a parched land. And Sam says, I feel like spring after winter and the sun after the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Jesus Christ is going to return Parkview Church at the blast of a trumpet and the new song in his new creation, will take that thing and in his love and power, he will bend it back towards you in blessing and glory. If you would just repent. If we would just repent, this is for those who repent. The story of your guilty past forgiven to the sacrifice of Christ. The story of your exhausted present refreshed through the presence of Christ, the story of your future restored to the return of Christ. It's for those who through Christ have repented and turned back and trusted in him. Because there is a warning here in verses 22 and 23, and we don't have all the time to go into details here. But there's a warning in verse 22. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 23 where Moses says there's gonna be a prophet in the last days that God will raise up and you better listen to this prophet and everything he says because if you do not listen to the prophet, verse 23, you will be cut off from God's people because those who refuse to listen to Jesus, the author of life, and instead choose to write their own stories and live for themselves, the only possible option... Apart from the life in the author of life is eternal conscious death forever under his judgment. Oh, what a hellish place to be forever, separated from the life of the author of resurrection life. And what Peter ends with is not ultimately a warning, but it's good news. Look at verses 25 to 26 where he says, The prophets have been telling the story that God would come through Abraham promising a blessing, a blessing to his people, and this God has done by raising up his servant. In summary, sending him to you, Jesus first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Here is the point, Parkview. You don't repent because God stands in heaven waiting to plunge a knife of curse into your life. You repent because you see Jesus Christ sent from heaven First to the Jewish people, and now to us all the nations, sending his own dear son, the author of life, who took the knife of God's curse, plunged it into his heart willingly, went into a tomb, raised from death three days later, and is now the living Lord who, verse 26, will bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. All of the exhaustion of living life for yourself, all of the shame of your past, done away with through Christ and his cross, the future that seems so uncertain is now bending towards blessing forever in Jesus Christ. He has done this through his death and resurrection to blot out forever all of your sin, to refresh you at your point of deepest exhaustion, and to restore to you, yes, even that thing that has caused most pain and trouble. If only we would repent and turn back to Jesus because you know what? he is the one in the end out of love for you because he knows how foolish and wicked we are. Verse 26, who turns us? It's Jesus because he wants to bless us and he's that good. So let us repent, part few, because of who Jesus is and what he wants to give to us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word to us in the gospel of Christ. Lord, would you convince us that we can return and repent because of all that Jesus is and all that he has done for us. And thank you so much that we now get to celebrate this meal together as a sign of the goodness of the forgiveness and refreshment of Christ. Amen.